John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 823.PS5707, certificate number 25729, Nadia's Well, this is going to be a show full of personal anecdote, I predict. No one has ever heard you talking about the mid-70s oh, but on, I, on this show. I think you're going to have some anecdotes here, too. When you told me you were doing Nadia's theme, I was so excited. Yeah, you were. I immediately had three different angles of storytelling. <laughs> I don't even know if I should include any facts or really anything. We should just start telling stories about... Let's just play Nadia's theme once, <laughs> and then there will be a... You'll have 20 minutes to talk about it, and I'll have 20-minute rebuttal. I feel like uh, like our our beloved editor and third Beatle, Mark Miles, could just be playing Nadia's theme throughout this entire episode. Wouldn't it make us seem more graceful? Yeah, like 50 minutes of it just... it would Well, graceful, but also sad and moving and... Tempestuous. Yeah. You grew up uh, watching American television on Armed Forces Radio. Yeah, it's weird that Armed Forces Radio had pictures. We could just imagine what Casey Kasem looked like. But, no, they had a TV service. But too. it was kind of an eclectic mix, right? How, how much, um, was it all contemporary or did you see old movies too? Did you watch the Munsters? They, uh, in addition to the new shows, which was stuff that was maybe six months or so out of date in the U.S., which they would cycle through full seasons of, they would also just, you know, they'd fill odd times, like like a U.S. affiliate with just whatever they had in the back. Uh-huh. So I've seen the first season of The Odd Couple uh-huh. 20 times and none of the subsequent ones because <laughs> awesome. they only had one. That first season's really good, though. They had. It's actually before they start hanging out with celebrities. It's a little more like the Neil Simon play. Yeah. Bunch of Star Trek. Um, but yeah, weird old, you know, like uh, a, lot of, a lot of army movies, you know, like they knew who their audience was. So a lot of John Wayne. Green berets, flying leathernecks, that kind of a thing. Uh, did it have soap operas? Yes. Every day when I came home from school. I mean, the the, the mythology, because I've told the story so many times, is that I would come home from school excited to watch Jeopardy. And that's 100% true. But in fact, I think Jeopardy didn't start till like five, which mm. meant I got home sometime during the two-hour power programming block 
for our servicemen and women of Guiding Light and General Hospital. Really? Yeah. You know, my babysitter had uh, <clears throat> the three channels uh, of American television, uh, and one of them was doing game shows, Price is Right, uh, all the way th- until the afternoon. Yeah, NBC had a full morning of game shows throughout the 80s, and CBS had Price is Right on, you know, until today. Yeah, and Wheel of Fortune, I think. Even yeah, there then. was a daytime Wheel of Fortune on, ooh, I want to say ABC, but maybe I'm wrong. CBS? And then the 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 soaps. So it was kind of depending on her mood. She definitely followed the soap opera. Oh, but she didn't have one of her programs that she always watched? I think she did, but it was before we got home from school. But then in the afternoon, you know, she could kind of be persuaded to flip over Maybe even to see Hogan's Heroes, if you if you were on, really on your good behavior. But otherwise, yeah, you were watching Guiding Light. Even back then, you were trying to make the show be about Hitler. Yeah, I really. You were like, "There's very little Hitler on uh, all my children today." Schultz. We should explain. Yeah. Soap operas to a far future audience, but also to a 2022 audience. Well, I wonder that is not aware of their one-time societal import you you have talked about doing an episode just on soap operas i'm going to do a show about the mainstreaming of general hospital in the 1980s we're, we're doing a luke and laura show uh-huh. and it's coming up but can you in a nutshell describe to somebody that hasn't experienced it the phenomenon of soap operas yeah what's the one sentence i mean the main thing they were is every day they were aimed at women initially yeah because yeah. because of that's who's home home during, during the day, the day. Um, they were extremely dramatic. The labor-saving devices of the 20th century meant that homemakers suddenly had a few hours free. Every episode, which was every day, didn't just have one cliffhanging dramatic moment where everybody gasped, but it had multiple ones per episode. Every scene would end with some kind of... Somebody like, oh, no. Some kind of moment of turbulent turns emotion. Out, turns out he, you know, he's actually his evil brother. Amazing that they could keep that many plots going. Many of the plot lines were romance-themed, but not always. So they, they could delve into crime and high adventure. Yeah. They were made incredibly cheaply in, uh, on stages in New York City by a group of actors that <sighs> loved the steady work and were had been good. had been unable to I was going to say had been <laughs> unable to break in but like a lot of famous people came from the soaps Rick Springfield and didn't George Clooney <laughs> Rick Springfield Rick Springfield was on a soap I would, opera I would use Alec Baldwin as my <laughs> example before Rick Springfield although maybe you know Rick Springfield hasn't shot anybody lately at the time Rick Springfield was a, was a, a very very big star Ken I'll have you know yeah I mean General Hospital was turning out Pop stars then, yeah. Jack Wagner, John Stamos. Again, this is cannibalizing from my Luke and Laura show. Yeah, yeah, but that's yeah. Well, okay. everybody that's listening, just forget all of this stuff so Ken can talk about it again <laughs> in, a, in another episode. Uh, but yeah, the soaps, I mean, I tried everything I could to avoid them, but... Oh, you didn't get sucked in. Because I found that if you would, no. you know, I, I'd find them impenetrable and then I'd watch them for three days and they it really works. You're like, wait, is she alive? That car looked like it was going pretty fast or... But we have to know what happened with the surgery, or are they really the same person? They haven't revealed who that whose hand that was. You know how it was when you read the funnies every day, and and one day you were like, you know what, I'm going to read Mary Worth, and then after a week of it, you're like, oh, I'm engaged in the plot line of Mary Worth, 
And then you read it for a month and you go, oh, the plot line of Mary Worth goes nowhere. <laughs> like nothing is ever resolved. Nothing ever, nothing ever happens. And, you know, I think that probably that happened to me with soap operas at a young age. But also the production values, just the fact that the, those stages were also shadowy. Shot on videotape with, yeah, with just, the cheapest lighting. Like, and, and you could tell that they were that they were bad actors. It just felt like... Well, they had all gotten their pages that morning. I mean, think yeah, of how right, think true. of how that must be that's to turn out an hour show every day. Every day. Only Luke Burbank can say what it's really like. <laughs> I, I mean, Jeopardy, I only do half an hour, and it's, it, it's a, that's a long day. Yeah. Well, and you're reading a teleprompter. Were they? I'm not reading a teleprompter. <laughs> <laughs> There's not a teleprompter somewhere? I think they must have been off on prompter, you know, or, or had sides just out of... Yeah, but you don't see them doing screen. it. You know, you wouldn't see them like you do on Saturday Night Live. I mean, you're putting these actors down, but they are very good at that particular That's craft. They, they're doing something difficult and fast every day. And a lot of them are on TV for 40 years. Or... And a lot of them become huge celebrities. Like, no one's ever heard of them, but to your grandma, they're the biggest star. Like, you go to the... They still publish Soap Opera Digest, I think, even though there's yeah. maybe three daytime soaps left. And you'll still see some of the same faces on the cover of... Soap opera digest and like they're like they're the biggest celebrities in that world because they are. I found that like uh, there was a big social aspect to it. Like because me and all my friends were locked into Armed Forces TV, we would all come home and watch. Oh, Guiding Light and General Hospital, and then call each other up and breathlessly. Well, we were talking. Recap. About, I mean, we were talking about it at school the next day. Oh, wow. There was a period where General Hospital was doing a lot of kind of faux low budget spy stuff. Uh -huh. The uh, the the good spies of the World Security Bureau. The WSB were always facing off against the DVX, the, the uh, crypto-Soviet um, oh. agency that was always infiltrating Port Charles, New York, for some reason. Sure, with of course. Its, with, its, uh, with its Iron Curtain spies. Of course, they were trying to bust those Grateful Dead concerts, those early 80s dead shows. And when, <laughs> and, and when there was a twist, we would like call and be like, oh my gosh, the assistant police chief is the, is the crime boss? Or, um, oh. You know, like we, we were something about it. I mean, maybe this is listomania, something about knowing your friends were following this dumb thing. You'd get into it too. How interesting. And it may just be the five year difference in our ages, but, but, uh, it's true. when I was a kid, it was exclusively the province of housewives and babysitters. And the idea that I or any of my friends would have watched us so well, voluntarily. No. If you're you, home, if you're homesick, you watch game shows. Yeah, That's, absolutely. Or, or, or Hogan's Heroes. Yeah. Brady Bunch or something. Yeah. That's the American way. But the accident of armed forces programming, plus, again, previewed that brief period in the 80s when General Hospital kind of tipped above the, the waterline of the iceberg and briefly became a, a national moment. We were into it. Well, let's save that for another show. I'm looking very forward to hearing about General Hospital in uh, the 80s. Who, who wouldn't want to hear us talk about for an hour yeah. about that? <laughs> Well, let's set the Wayback Machine to a little bit earlier. Um, in 1971, let's say. Now, this is... For example. This is before you were born. A young John Roderick is is one or two years old. Yeah, well, three. I was three. Eating strained peas three from a plastic old. spoon. You know, by that point in time, I was probably... You could have been riding a bike with training wheels. Yeah. I for was, all, you're riding a big wheel. I was. I had a big wheel. We were living in Alaska at the time, so, you know, I had a really big wheel. Sliding all over the ice on your big wheel. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go back to, uh, set the Wayback Machine to 1970. A young John Roderick is 
now a mere year and a half old. Yeah, a year and a half, year two, two. Let's say I would have turned, uh, well, yeah, I would have turned two in the fall of 1970. Would have been, you know, riding my trike. It was pre big wheel, so I would have had a trike. I have a picture of the trike actually. I had a little red trike that yeah. I can still. I that I it's. It's totemic for me to imagine it. Yeah, I think mine was orange because you know my parents were iconoclasts. But I want to stand out in the snow there. An author uh, by the name of uh, Glendon Swarthout. That's fake. Um, who was at the time, you know, in his uh, in his late forties, maybe fifty. He would have been. He would have well fifty two. Um, wrote a book called "Bless the Beasts and the Children," and it was a kind of uh, a little bit of an environmentalist novel. It was a little bit of um, sort of the, you know, I was thinking the other day, one of the things that characterizes Generation X and all of the media that we produced as in our brief period as makers of Sad Dad Rock and uh, and whatever we else didn't get long. Gen X made. No, why, did the, why did the boomers get 60 years? Well, there are twice as many of them as us. <laughs> they outnumber us. But one of the things that characterizes us is that we talked a lot about our personal lives and our childhoods. You know, there weren't a ton of boomer rock bands that talked about their parents. Um, maybe that's uh, because their fathers never spoke more than six words in a row to them. Yeah. But mostly they, you know, a lot of their music was in the present tense. They were getting high or, or having the sex or whatever it they was. Were the the they were doing the mashed potato. They were doing the twist. Yeah. I mean, maybe um, maybe uh, the cats in the cradle is an example of a kind of... But that's why that's the example. Because it's like no one had heard anybody, one of these guys, sing about their dad before. Yeah, so sentimental. Uh, and, and maybe the city of New Orleans is about the death of the railroads, but for the most part, and even that was present tense, but then all of our music and culture generation X, it was all, except for friends was all very, you know, uh, introspective and, and, uh, and, and psychological and bless the beast and the children was this kind of novel that was, um, it was about troubled kids and it was about the plight of the American Buffalo. It was, you know, kind of a combination of all these, these sixties. I never read or saw it. It's, it's, so it's set in the sixties. It's not a period. I always assumed it was some kind of a frontier thing. No, no, no. It, it was uh, it was a contemporary book and it huh. got made into a, a movie shortly thereafter. Right. Uh, no less a person than Stanley Kramer. The director. Maybe my least favorite American director. Is that right? Yeah, the preachiest. I like Judgment at Nuremberg a lot, actually. Yeah. But um, You don't like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Defiant Ones. The Kane Mutiny? Actually, I kind of like the Kane Mutiny. But, High um, Noon? Inherit, like Inherit the yeah, Wind. I mean, he, he does these kind of stagey, playhouse, 90 things that you're like, what? Why is it, they just haven't aged that well. In my I, and I guess I watched High Noon not that long ago, and I was like, God... Why don't you just leave town? <laughs> like, go. Yeah, I really want to like High Noon, and I'd, you know, I'd rather watch Shane or Rio Bravo any day of the week. Well, Kramer uh, read this novel, and he got into a bidding war. He really wanted to make the movie. Kramer from Seinfeld did this? Uh, yeah, Kramer from Jerry, Seinfeld. Jerry, I'm in a bidding war. <laughs> it's a bidding war, Jerry. Wow. Uh, no, Stanley Kramer. Okay. Uh, got into this, uh, got into this uh, kerfuffle trying to make this film. Must have been a hit novel. It was a popular novel, um, and it was, you know, it was a, uh, it was a message 
book. It's funny. This guy's a uh, he's got an ecological take, even though he, most of his books are westerns, right? Yeah, the shootist is ba- the John Wayne movie. The shootist is based on a book of his. It looks like, which I didn't know. And this has this. Uh, you you aren't wrong that it has a that it has a frontier kind of tone to it. The plot was that a group of misfit teens were sent to a boys' camp called the Arizona Box Canyon Boys' Camp. Oh, like a scared straight kind of a... Yeah, and they're all um, they're all misfits in their own individual way. There's uh, a princess, an athlete, a brain, a basket case, and a... Uh, well, they're, they're more seventies misfits, um, where they're, uh, they're, you know, like it's a dropout, a dropout, a dropout, a dropout, <laughs> yeah, and a dropout. truly troubled kids that get bullied. Uh, the other kids at the camp nicknamed their little squad, the bedwetters. Mm. Um, they're all kind of abused by their absentee parents or, um, you know, they're, they are truly the troubled kids, not the comically troubled kids that you see in the breakfast club. Right. Uh, this is, you know, this is back when you could make a movie where kids really get brutalized. Uh, that fell out of fashion later on, maybe for, uh, maybe for obvious reasons and maybe something was lost, <laughs> <laughs> but, but these kids really have a, have a rough go of it. And the lead teen or the teen that kind of steps forward and says like, Hey, you know, we shouldn't take this abuse because they're taking abuse from the other kids in the uh, in oh, the camps, even among the misfits, oh, yeah. they're the misfits. Oh yeah, I mean, it, this is a boys' camp that, for some people, kind of like my experience at Outward Bound, some of the kids there are having a camp experience, and some of them are having a um, an awful experience. I see. Not everybody is there by yeah by court order. <laughs> and there's a you know there's a, uh, a sociopathic camp counselor who's a real bully. Nurse ratchet type. Yeah, everybody's getting pushed around. And the bedwetters end up um, fighting the good fight in a way that, that brings them together. Like they unite in their their brokenness, in their awkwardness. And there's a herd of buffalo. Twist. That figures in the film. Most That is not the, the second act twist in many novels. Suddenly, a herd of buffalo. I mean, and then it would really improve Catch Twenty Two. A herd of buffalo. Uh, no one expects a herd of buffalo, but it's kind of like the Electric Horseman. There were a lot of uh, movies in the seventies that featured uh, wild horses or some kind of mechanism where they um, they personify or they exemplify the de- the de- the loss of the American West. Sure. It's, right. the, it's the dying cowboy and last picture show. Yeah, it's the it's the sad Indian on the side of the road when you throw your uh, garbage out the window. Right. Uh, it's just a way that filmmakers and culture makers had of communicating. Well, it's like the city of New Orleans, right? The 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 train conductor says, "Drive right, take a break." Well, the oldest people of that generation were dying. You know, like that that was the time when the the last living cow hands and and you know the native americans who remembered that period were the elders were dying sure in 1970 a 70 year old could conceivably remember a frontier that still had a little i mean butch cassidy and the sundance kid was so yeah butch cassidy and the sundance kid that was all uh early 20th century so there this, this Sund- was in sundance, living kid, memory. sundance kid lived in 1937 if um if the stories are true about him surviving the, <laughs> right, the but shootout. That, that's like, oh, uh, they saw him, uh, somebody saw him in a post office. A somewhere, guy who right? looked a lot like him was yeah. buying a, something at Woolworths. 
But Butch died in yeah the shootout was nineteen oh eight nineteen oh eight right. Uh, anyway, and then so the kids uh, the kids identify with the buffalo. The buffalo are are penned in. The 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 sociopathic counselor is is hunting them wow. or shooting them. You know, supposedly culling the herd, but really he's just a killer. And these buffalo are. Uh, you know, they need to be free. They need to be free to, to ride their machines. This is one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, this is Buffalo instead of chief. And so the kids, uh, you know, the kids take on the cause of the Buffalo. I won't give away the ending, but there's a kind of tragic ending. Have you seen the movie? I have. Is it good? Well, so what happened to me in, in the 1970s, my mom in the mid seventies, she had a boyfriend named Norm and Norm was pretty Norm. He actually smoked a pipe. Um, classic seventies, classic seventies dad smoked a pipe named Norm. And he, Norm had four kids and the kids were kind of, my sister and I were in age kind of fit right into his group of kids. Um, and he had a son that was the same age as me, but he and I didn't get along. His name was also John, but the son that was older than me, Andy was, uh, was, uh, considerably older than me, three or four years at a time when I was, what, seven or eight, eight years old, I guess. And he would have been 12. Andy took me under his wing and he was my, uh, he kind of taught me to, I think as a younger kid, I was a little bit in a shell, a little timid. And, uh, Andy was the one that, you know, we would roam the whole city. Like we would go get on a city bus. They lived in the U district. And he would just take me downtown. That's and, nice that and, he was. Oh yeah, and he was a little bit of a. You, and... you know, his mother had died. He was a little bit of a troubled kid, and we would get into scrapes. Like we would, we would go into a downtown office building, and Andy would light two smoke bombs and throw them in an elevator right <laughs> as the doors were closing. Like a lot of stuff that maybe I should have, maybe as I lost my timidity, I shouldn't have learned quite that much about about causing trouble in the world. You should have falsified some of the details so you didn't know how to make your own smoke bombs. Yeah, we got into a lot of trouble. We He was the one that taught me how to pinch a whistling Pete with a pair of pliers and make it explode. <laughs> anyway, one night, Andy and I were watching TV and we were in, they had a, a Airstream parked out in back of their house and we were, he and I were kind of living in it. And there was a little black and white TV in there and it was we were watching The Late Show and they played Bless the Beasts and the Children. Which at that time, the movie came out in 71. We would have been watching it in 75, maybe. And the movie just devastated me. Because it was about kids that were Andy's age. Uh, and it has a, you know, it's... A- any kid kind of maybe feels like a misfit. I certainly did. And in, in 1975 or 6, I definitely was still wetting the bed. So them being called bedwetters really resonated with me. But in particular, I remember the soundtrack to the film because it was extremely affecting. The title song is uh, very catchy and memorable. So the title song was recorded by the Carpenters Yep, and was a B-side that uh, of, a, of a record that went to number two, but there's a music video for it. Four Non Blondes covered it on that 90s era Carpenters tribute album, I remember. And we... This is my brush with fame. Sang it in my fifth grade music class. You didn't. Yeah, we had a we had some music textbook that had a bunch of that kind of 
soppy Anne Murray sounding 70s stuff. And it's super soppy. Some actually radio hits like Bless the Beats and the Children and some just kind of made up pastiche things that to this day I cannot Google. (laughs) Like me and all my friends in that class can still sing every word to uh, uh, Sunny Lane. And and we thought these were real pop songs because we were singing them in fifth grade choir. And then you Google these things and they don't exist because it was just one hot and Mifflin music textbook from from 1978. But this, we sang Blessing the Beast and the Children. It's classic, easy listening, uh, proto-yacht rock, right? If you AM listen gold. to it, the, the, the Carpenter's version, there's just a lot of strings. It's really, really treacly. I mean, and Karen, the best. The best vocalist of the decade, the per- best. perhaps. And and really, you know, the progenitor of a, a... Well, that's another word I should stop using, right? In addition to what were the other two? I got to stop saying progenitor. Well, you should probably say progenitor. Or whatever. Maybe if you start <laughs> saying it right, people will consider it a different word. <laughs> Good drummer, too, by the way. Were we talking about this on the show? Uh, the, uh, Karen Carpenter? I just went down a rabbit hole of watching Karen Carpenter oh, drumming videos for two hours. phenomenal. She was phenomenal. Good Lord. And they didn't want her to sit behind the drum kit. They wanted her to be out front uh, because she was a beautiful lady. But her her drumming is what made that music, I think. More, more than his Rhodes playing. Uh, and he's not even much of a singer. You listen to their Christmas record, which I did a couple months ago. <laughs> sure, of course uh, you did. <laughs> for hours at a time because Mindy, it's Mindy's favorite Christmas record. And oh. he is the, he, he can't even sing. I guess he's a great arranger or yeah. something. Well, great arranger is not nothing. But uh, but yeah, I'm just I'm still reeling from the fact that Mindy's favorite Christmas record is the Carpenter's one. Has she never heard "Man, I Am Steamroller"? It's the only Christmas record she's ever heard. It's uh-huh. it's both her favorite and her least favorite. <laughs> I mean, I just play the Phil Spector over and over, and she gets tired of it. Ken, how's your hair? My hair feels great. It's actually it's pretty full and and uh, f- and fluffy. I don't want to brag. They stopped having to fill in the back of my head with um, spray foam. Yeah, there's kind of there's like a th- you know because like harsh TV lights really yeah. make people look balder than they are. Sometimes they have been filling in the back of my head, and they don't have to anymore. They don't have to. I mean, it, you know the the degree to which a full head of hair is part of uh, you know a kind of masculine identity you are in a in a position where millions of people see well millions uh some number of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people no, see <laughs> see you every week uh hosting the jeopardy program and you don't want to look like um less than the full amount of fluff the problem with our um cultural obsession with hair and baldness is that like literally two out of three guys the majority of men will experience some kind of male pattern baldness in their mid thirties, yeah. you know, by the time they're 35. Right. And then it just goes up from there. So it's not like it's a, a, a rare or severe or stigmatized problem. It shouldn't be. It happens to almost everybody. And it used to be, if you wanted to get, um, like an, uh, a hair loss preventing medicine, you had to go to a doctor, right? Yeah. You'd have to get a prescription sometimes. You'd have to use a name brand. And uh, a lot of them aren't FDA approved. Yes, there's two FDA-approved ones, and the great thing is Only you, two. you can get both of them uh, cheaper and easier with Keeps, uh, an online service for ordering, for prescribing and ordering, uh, and then continuing to receive uh, FDA-approved hair loss medication. Oh, so it still is a prescription in order to, to get the one of the two FDA-approved If you want ones. the prescribed one, yeah, you can get the prescription online. Um, you don't have to visit a doctor. Uh, you'll get a cheaper generic, so you're going to save a ton of money. 
And it's really important to do it when you think you might be in the early stages because, you know, the best thing you can do is maintain. I mean, there may be some regrowth, but the great, the great thing is you can keep what you have now. I remember when you had less hair and it's sort of phenomenal that it's worked and look at your hair now. Uh, Seemed like well, you, you. you look like a little badger. That's what I asked for. Uh-huh. I went to my doctor because I, uh, you know, this is before I knew about keeps, and I said, "What do you have that will make me look like a little badger?" He said, "Doctor, Mister MD." So, if you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, what do you do? Go to keeps k e e p s dot com slash omnibus, and if you use that code, you'll get your first month of treatment for free. You're saying K-E-E-P-S dot com slash omnibus to get your first month free? K-E-E-P-S dot com slash omnibus. Well, the movie, A Bless the Beasts and the Children, was scored by a, a pair of songwriters, the songwriter Barry DeVorzon and the arranger Perry Botkin uh, did a whole score for the film. Uh, Barry DeVorzon was a was the guy that first signed the association to uh, to his record label Valiant Records. So he was a he was like a music guy. He um, he went on to write the the music for the film The Warriors. Hmm. Like he he was a songwriter. Had some collaborations with some folks. And then uh, Perry Botkin was an arranger that uh, that also had a pretty a pretty long CV, one that you wouldn't maybe know everything on it. But interestingly, he was the arranger for the incredible bongo band, the incredible bongo band being the, a, a band from the era, the, the, the Bonzo dog band. No, the bongo <laughs> band. They did covers of tunes where they featured the bongos. See, there was a lot of bongo playing. Are, can you, are, are there really a lot of songs where you can just sub in most of the instruments with bongos? I'm, I'm a little skeptical. Like if you'd said they were an accordion or a banjo cover band, I can hear that in my head. Well, I feel like you can't really replace most lead instruments with the bongo. Yeah, I mean, there are other instruments, but you do a lot of long, long drum breaks. I and see. that's where uh, Perry Bodkin made a lot of money in his life because some of those drum breaks were later sampled by rap artists, oh, the bongo band classic breaks uh, created one of the most famous breaks, the Apache break, <laughs> that gets used in everything. And so Botkin's always like collecting these uh, royalty checks. Well, let's see. Devorzen's still alive. Botkin died in '73. Botkin had no idea that he was going to receive his greatest fame in. Uh, or no, this is his son. Perry. Yes, Botkin. Perry. Bot- this is. Oh, his dad was an arranger. Yeah, Perry Botkin Jr. died in. Oh. He died a year ago. So he did live to see his... Oh, yeah. He lived to see it and... See everyone in, every kid in Brooklyn and Queens love him. He was often very confused about what was happening. Although he continued to be an arranger, he wasn't sure about, you know, uh, all this rap music and whatnot. But I, I am also unsure what's happening. So The two of them, uh, the two of them recorded this soundtrack to Bless the Beast and the Children. And one of the kind of incidental music pieces was... Um, some theme music that they wrote for the character John Cotton, the, 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 the main kid. He's the kid. And it was called Cotton's Theme. And it was just a kind of, you know, interstitial music played under, under Cotton. And I remember this music from watching it as a, as a kid. Because it, it reoccurs. The score is memorable enough that you remembered incidental music. I remembered watching it on this little black and white TV and being really moved by the music. And in particular, the way the music scores the events of the film. You know, the, the this song comes in 
um, in a way that, that really connected with me. So there was a soundtrack because the Carpenters sang this, the title track, there was a soundtrack for the film that, um, that included all of this stuff shortly. And the soundtrack, you know, it, uh, the soundtrack sold all right, but then crucially, and I have to admire him for this, uh, Perry Botkin, Perry Botkin Jr. S- rearranged Cotton's theme, which had, you know, which had made no stir in the world uh, as, as a incidental music sure. on the back of this as, soundtrack. Record. As most of them don't. He rearranged it for the premiere of The Young and the Restless, a brand new soap opera that appeared in 1973. Is that unusual to reuse incidental music from a movie as a TV theme? Well, as someone who is always trying to uh, take his very limited set of ideas and repurpose them uh, over and over... I really admire somebody that's like, you know, I put this out and it didn't really connect the way I wanted. What if I just changed it around and turned it into this? It's not, uh, it's not that common to release a thing and then call it something else. But he was the arranger of the original track. It didn't. It wasn't anything. It was just a. It was just a backing track. Yeah. Why not convert it to the sound or the, the 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 theme for the Young and the Restless? And it really connected with people as the theme to the Young and the Restless and. For obvious reasons, when you see the opening credits of The Young and the Restless, this music in this new context, and it's a rearrangement of the album track, um, but still, you know, it's it's um, it's very there. And it, uh, again, it's very moving music. And now set apart, it connects with an audience. And you listen to it five times a week if you're yeah. a fan of the show. Like, those soap themes just become iconic. Yeah. Like, I can still tell you the font used in every daytime soap I watched as a kid, just because you you're seeing it every day. And this music is dramatic and it's sad. And, um, so then the young and the restless actually released a soundtrack record. Seems a little unusual, but you know, this was the seventies. And I mean, the seventies, as we'll see at the end of the show, or uh, this is an era when, um, the theme music to television shows, yeah. actually, the the 60s and 70s, a lot of it appeared on the pop charts. Peter Gunn theme, Hawaii Five O theme, theme from SWAT. I mean, these were all um, these were all hit songs, yeah, or in a lot of cases, hits, yeah. hit song. Um, so Young and the Restless put out a, a which record. makes you wonder where they're on the radio. Where yeah. people are calling into their to their rock radio stations and requesting. Oh, for sure, because they were some funky jams. A lot of them, funky, funky, funky jams. I think they should still play the Barney Miller theme on the radio today. Boom. That would be a break. Speaking of Wawa. In 1974, the soundtrack to The Young and the Restless came out, and the theme had been re-recorded by an easy listening group called Sounds of Sunshine. Is this their big hit? I've never heard of Sounds of Sunshine. And they actually have lyrics on, uh, on Cotton's theme, on the, the uh, Young and the Restless theme. Did they add, did they add their own lyrics? There were, there were not lyrics on any prior version. Hmm. Um, and their version of the song 
uh, the vocals actually do some of the melody that the original version would have been, you know, or- orchestral. They actually kind of handle the main theme in their vocals. There's a lot of wah-wah on that track. Hmm. Uh, and that was, you know, kind of not, uh, it didn't, it didn't rip up the charts in 1974. Um, but so now there were, there were three versions of the song out there. There was the original soundtrack version. There was the young and the restless theme, which was a rearrangement. And now this sounds of sunshine pop version, pop version, which was on the soundtrack. Well, two years later, a little event you might remember. I will not remember. I was two years old. Yeah. Well, 1976. The tall ships are in the harbor. (laughs) An event that I remember very, very clearly. It was the 1976 Olympics. Were those in 1976? The 1976 Olympics appeared, occurred coincidentally in 1976. I thought there was some French Canadian thing where... It was actually in 1977 there already. Uh, well, yeah, that's right. Ca- Canada is across the international dateline from the United States, the <laughs> north, south, or the uh, east-west <laughs> international dateline. And famously at uh, at the 1976 Olympics, Nadia Comaneci, someone we've um, talked about on the show before. Probably come up here more than any other Romanian gymnast. Right. I would say absolutely true. Uh, and By a wide march. And she was, along with Betty Rubble, uh, a proto, uh, was she a Jane Weedland for you? She was, a, she was a archetype of a Jane Weedland. See, I was fixated on Olga Corbett. See, it's yeah. totally, no, we're, di- we're I, different. I'm just kidding. Uh, I was in love with Nadia. She wasn't that much older than me. What was I? I was, I was eight years old and, uh, and she, she was 12. Right. Um, this could happen. She was, this ext- could still happen. She, it still could. Well, no, she's, she's still married. married to Bart Connor. She's happily married to Bart Connor. Yeah. Living in Arizona. She, uh, she was born in, uh, Babylonia, moved to Arizona. <laughs> Well, she's probably closer than most celebrities. I mean, she's born 400 miles from Babylonia, right? Right, right. Although the, that's a, that's the opposite. It's opposite day. But so she won the first ten in the Olympics, and then won, won sub, some subsequent tens. The first, uh, the know, first perfect ten, the perfect 10. ever scored in. Well, I can't remember what it was. The the, beam? the balance beam. Yeah, beam, that's what I'm picturing. Uh, the funny thing is, my childhood includes very. Um, a very strong memory of watching the TV movie version of this. Oh, so so but what, not featuring Nadia, uh, featuring a separate person. I don't know who played her. No, I, no, no. It, we'll get to that because it oh, was. Oh, you know about this? Yeah, I did. yeah. So I can picture the 1.0 coming up and the crowd being confused at the low score, but I'm not picturing ABC footage. I'm picturing this TV movie. Well, it you know I I was watching the Olympics and it was it was extraordinary. It was you know you, you were too confused to be moved like we are now because it now it's presented kind of universally it's always scored uh with with music and that was a thing that began very shortly after the olympics abc wide world of sports created uh, a montage of all of her performances she did not do the floor exercise to nadia's theme no I guess that would have been pretty egotistical of her. Uh, she did her floor exercises to two songs. One, the first one, Yes, Sir, That's My Baby, which was a <laughs> the, 1920s. The biggest hit of 1976. <laughs> it's a, I loved when the association did that as the B-side to Cherish. It's actually been covered a lot uh, by you know by all the, uh, the, the sort of 60s era crooners. But it was a, a 1920s yeah. sort of it's sheet a megaphone music song. song. Yeah. And then uh, the other song was Jump in the Line. 
by Harry <laughs> Belafonte. Because she, she loved the bongos. Yeah. Or Sir Kitchener, I guess, wrote it. Um, wow. But, uh, but no, Nadia's theme did not appear. But someone at ABC, familiar with this song from its uh, prior incarnation. Because Young and the Restless is an ABC soap, right? So yeah, it's- and it's on TV at this point. It's now three years old. Uh, they score this montage of all of Nadia's greatest Olympic hits to the Young and the Restless. That's or, a little to, weird. To the uh, to this this music because today it's not uncommon for sports shows and package shows to use you know music to play music under this stuff, but you would never use a daytime theme song for this, right? Right. You'd want something with a little higher pedigree. Well, and what's amazing is, again, this this music is uh, underscoring, literally, her her performances. It just imparted this incredible drama that, that they were hoping for. It's the exact right music for them. Yeah, where you're just like, where what it does is it brings out all the emotion in her getting those perfect tens that when it first aired on TV, you're just like, what's happening? Oh my God, a 10, you know, there's, there's astonishment. There's, there's confusion. You can see it in her face and in her coach's face. Like there, there's no jumping up and down. They're like, what's going on. But, but with this music, this kind of piano, uh, ballad that takes a long time to evolve. It's just the perfect thing. And the, the, um, the kind of fandom, the, 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 the global fascination with her in that moment meant that this montage was watched by millions of people and became in, in itself the kind of document, definitive document of her accomplishment. All over the world, more people saw that music video version of it than the original right. of, uh, events. And all of a sudden, everybody wanted this music. Um. Barry, which, which had originated in a Stanley Kramer movie five years ago. Barry uh, Devorzon immediately retitled it Nadia's theme. It had always been Cotton's theme up take, until then. Take that, Cotton. And um, A&M Records released it, re- released the 1971 film soundtrack version in 1976 as a pop single. Um, it rocketed up the charts and spent 22 weeks in the Hot 100, <laughs> and got to a peak of number eight. Am I wrong that this kind of still happens? Like a, a piece will be used by a figure skater, and suddenly it'll be rediscovered, and nowadays can even chart? Well, yeah, that's why Jump in the Line ended up in, <laughs> in Beetlejuice. Uh, unfortunately, A&M actually left Dvorzon's name off of the record hey. when they released it, and he sued them successfully for $240,000 for the... Uh, for I think the insult and maybe even the lost revenue, although I'm not sure they they certainly could have corrected that in the in the revenue department. Anyway, he successfully sued, but not in the insult. They'd have to add his name onto a song he did not write. Oh, right. and have that go. Yeah, maybe they go they could have done. Uh, they should have. They should have makeup. Sweet stuff emotion like that. or something. <laughs> <laughs> Some meatloaf song. Yeah, right about the same time. Uh, but then there was quickly a uh, a kind of. This song, and I remember it very much being the song of 1976. There were a lot of songs in 1976. It was a great year for music. But for you, nothing spoke to you like Nadia's. I forget. What was, uh, when when did, um, 
when did Devil Woman by Cliff Richard come out? That was also a very, I was really into that <laughs> song at the time. And I think Convoy by C.W. McCall, which we've talked about on we've the show. We've already put Convoy in there. Yeah, I think that's all about the same time. But um, right after, in October, a record company called Pip Records released The Sounds of Sunshine uh, version oh, of the they song. they re-released the original uh, pop version. Yeah, and then re-released the Young and the Restless soundtrack, both of which sold. Those were, um, you know, trying to capitalize on it. Well, this must be weird for the Young and the Restless, which is now continuing to use as its theme song a pop song more popular as something else. Right. This is now Nadia's theme, and every week you or every day every you day. T- tune into the show and you're like, it's Nadia's theme, but I mean, I guess it reciprocates. Yeah, they're, I'm sure they're happy to have the hit, but just unprecedented for a TV show. Well, also in October 76, Dvorzon himself releases his first solo album, and the solo album is called Nadia's Theme. Hmm. And then right after that, Sounds of Sunshine release an album also called Nadia's Theme. What does Nadia think about it? Like her name, she has no rights of publicity here. Her name is basically being taken in vain and her celebrity is being used to sell instrumental records. Well, she went back to Romania where she was given three squares a day and not allowed out of the sight of her, uh, her handlers, her KGB handlers, because they were terrified that she was going to defect. So yeah, all of this was happening... Um, you know, sort of in in the same style of Charles Dickens coming to the United States and and being feted everywhere, but not having copyright over his books. I just wonder if it would have been different if she'd actually been Western European. For sure. And could have been like, hey, uh, you can't just... Well, she would have gotten a cut. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then what you remember is the uh, November of 76 CBS dramatization, Nadia from Romania with love. Nadia from Romania with Love, which was narrated by Flip Wilson. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I, that does exist, but I'm remembering a, like a biopic. Oh, oh, with an, with another actress. Yes. Uh, playing the role of Nadia. It was it Mar- uh, Mary Lou Retton. <laughs> no, it's one Johan Carlo, whose credits I do not recognize. Oh, she's the cabbie on Pee-wee's Playhouse on the first season of Pee-wee's Playhouse. That's funny. Uh, her dad in this movie is actually played by Jonathan Banks, Mike from Breaking Bad. Oh. Which I would not have been able to tell you. But uh, Antalya Balsam plays Pela Caroli's wife. No, this is a TV movie that I'm sure I'm the only person alive who has ever seen. But the, I want to see the Flip Wilson one now. I'm a Nadia completist. I know. Do you think ABC let CBS use the... Um, they must have. Well, no, thing. I mean, maybe they, they just, they got it from uh, from Barry Devorzon. Maybe they withheld it and CBS had to use the, um, you know, the bold and the beautiful theme or something. What's interesting is that this was not the first instrumental song by Barry Devorzon to top the charts in 1976. What? Uh, Cotton's theme, Nadia's theme, peaked at number eight, but... Barry Devorzon had a number one hit in February of 76 with the theme from SWAT. I think I think the theme from SWAT was like the last TV hit to be a number one until, I don't know, like The Greatest American Hero didn't do it, like something pretty recently. Well, there was another number one song in 1976 from a TV show, 
which was the Welcome Back Cotter theme by John Sebastian, I also it, went to number one. I just think of that as incidentally a TV theme. It's um, it's, it's a pretty great tune. <laughs> and uh, I think he might have sung it on, did he sing it on the first SNL? I feel like he's the musical guest on the first SNL or oh, something. Oh, I thought it was Paul Simon. Mm. Welcome back. I could still I still know every word of it. But yeah, believe it or not, I'm walking on air was a hit in '81. Um, making our dreams come true from Laverne and Shirley only got to number 25. You've got a list. I do. Uh, Suicide is Painless was a hit in the UK, a number one hit in the UK. Hmm. And then, of course, the Miami Vice theme. Oh, my, that's what it was. It was Miami in Vice in 1985 by Jan Ham. Greatest American Hero didn't quite get there. And then after that, here's the one I think I'm thinking of, although. You know, this is not more recent at all. <laughs> In the 90s, how do you talk to an angel from The Heights? Right, The Heights. And that song was actually credited to a band called The Heights. Are they like the Archies? Uh, they're like the Archies. And then hilariously, um, the day after How Do You Talk to an Angel got to number one on the charts, they canceled the television show <laughs> The Heights. <laughs> so too bad for I mean, it's not too different Heights. than Greatest American Hero, where everyone remembers the song more than any single thing that ever happened I on the show. I loved that show. It was, was the, it was the only show that had like superhero stuff on TV. Yeah, and it was hilarious because he couldn't control his suit. Whoa, Whoa! He's, he's flailing around. Crash. The aliens gave him the instructions, but he lost them. He lost them. He lost the instructions. Yeah. Classic Ikea That's, superhero comic. You know, he's probably Mormon. Because he lost the instructions. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I have no idea what he that lost means. the gold tablets oh i see what you're yeah, saying yeah, yes. lost them couldn't control the suit they're always in the last place you look <laughs> well uh nadia's theme ended up winning the grammy award in 1977 best instrumental grammy so uh one would think that was the end of the story it's already had more lives than a but in fact, it became the foundation, many years later, of Mary J. Blige's hit, No More Drama. No. Yeah. Is it sampled or? Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. So No, no More Drama is happening, and it's, it, it, it's, that's a Jimmy Jam and Terry, Terry Lewis yeah. uh, jam. Jam, as it were. And they, uh, they loved they loved Nadia's theme. They'd been trying to put it into a tune forever. They came up with this backing track, and Mary J. Blige said, are you guys following me around? Because this is like exactly what I wanted to do next, exactly what I, what I heard in my mind. I remember this, because she actually says, or maybe I like the stress because I was young and restless, but that was long ago. She actually name-checks the, the Right. The, the CBS, she was hearing so. it as the soap theme. I think I said it was ABC, but it's CBS, huh? So that means w Wide World of Sports or whatever is, was going cross-network to borrow the Young and the Restless theme. Oh, interesting. Ass yeah, we assuming, talked about that a lot, and yet it turned out we were wrong. Assuming ABC had the uh, Olympics that year. Which we're I, we're I like scientists, know. Ken. We are not afraid to admit we're wrong. When the research shows mm -hmm. that our uh, our hypothesis about Young and the Restless being on ABC is wrong, we will go back Yep, and we will... Redo the work. We'll admit it. And some of, you know, you were kind of broadly implying that, that ABC was cross promoting, but no, but no, it turns out this was like some kind of shared, it was a, sh it was like a universe of shared content. It would be like CBS stealing the friends theme and, hmm. and putting it on the on good morning America. 
Turns out when CBS made Nadia from Romania with Love, hosted by Flip Wilson, they were actually using their own intellectual property. That's a relief. I'm sure Flip Wilson wouldn't want wouldn't to piss anyone off. And that concludes Nadia's theme. Entry 823.PS5707, certificate number 25729 in the Omnibus, a show which is now entirely going to be about syrupy 1970s pop. We're going to do every bread record. We're going to live live listen to every bread record in order. Uh, going to have some uh, Anne Murray I already mentioned. It's going to be great. Uh, Futurelings, we are products of our time, uh, not just in the AM radio department, also in social media. So you could always find us at Omnibus Project on the social media platforms of your choice. I was at Ken Jennings. John is at John Roderick. Uh, you could email us at the omnibus project at gmail.com. But if you already emailed us mid show to tell us we got the young and the restless networks wrong, uh, stop, you should, uh, you should Delete. unsend, unsend, <laughs> send one of those, uh, revoked, uh, follow up emails. Is that a thing? I have somebody who, who, who does that. Like if they, if they want to unsend something, cause they got a fact wrong, they will send a, uh, rescinded or whatever. And I didn't, I don't think you can do that. I accidentally sent a email to uh, someone who was on the original email, and I was I was sending it to somebody else, but I didn't want to... About them? Well, no, it wasn't that, but it def- definitely was one I didn't... And I wrote them and said, hey, delete that without reading it, please. It's not relevant, and you don't want to read it, so leave it. And they wrote back and were like, I deleted it. Thanks for telling me. Wow, you're like a cult leader. Yeah, so I don't know, but who knows if they did. If you ever text me saying delete anything in my inbox, I will do it. Can delete it. Delete something from three years ago, not sent by me. <laughs> delete all the mail that you've gotten from CBS. Gmail now has a thing where if you send your email, it'll say sent and then be like, or did you mean to? Oh, really? And I think all they do is they just hold off for five seconds. Oh. And give you a chance to be like, no, wait. And I, I honestly think three or four times I've been like, Wait, I wanted to, you know, I realized what I did wrong and I actually yank it back right as it's leaving. It's like the, the, like the five-second delay on Saturday Night Live. Exactly. Like, oh, I wanted to add more swears to that. Except now it's for, yeah, it's for adding swears. Um, you could send us physical items at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. We just got a note from, oh, it's uh, Ren who just did the... Uh, Santiago de Compostela. Oh, congratulations. Pilgrimage, 500 miles. And listen to the show. Yeah, he walked 500 miles. I don't know and if he's going to walk 500 more. Well, probably if he wants to get back to the airport. It, maybe a she isn't Ren usually. It's W R E N. Oh, like oh yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry like, to have misgendered not you. Not like Ren. Ren and Steve. Well, we don't know. Right. We don't know. We won't speculate. Uh, but it, what a great idea. Is that really a spiritual pilgrimage if you're listening to a podcast the whole time? I was slightly disappointed John only mentioned his walk across Europe six times. <laughs> Zing. You know what? Up yours, Ren. That's what I say about that. We, <laughs> <laughs> we also got a note from a friend in Dothan, Alabama, the peanut capital of the world, who sends us kind of this vintage uh, postcard from... Nearby Enterprise, Alabama. Enterprise, Alabama. What is the Enterprise in Alabama? Uh, I must in be Enterprise. cotton because the only thing I know about it is the bull weevil statue there. Oh, sure. In proud appreciation of the bull weevil. 
That's what the facts about the 50 states book I had as a kid had for there. Uh, Celeste manages the Martin Drugstore. In Enterprise, Alabama. I guess it recently moved from Enterprise to Dothan. Am I, am, are we going to get zing Dothan? Because it's, it's not Dothan? How do you say the Alabama city? Uh, is it spelled Dothan? Or no, is it T-H-D-O-T-H-A-N. Oh, Dothan. It is. But they probably say something else, don't they? I don't know. The dictionary says Dothan. Dothan. Uh, let's see. Did you just what? say that with a fake southern accent? Dothan? Dothan. Come um, on down to Dothan. Meet some friends of mine. She has a story about a couple from Germany who stopped in her drugstore to ask where to go for dinner. Mm-hmm. Luckily, it was the opening weekend of the National Peanut Festival, held every November since 1938, except for World War II and COVID. That's not German? When or, George Washington Carver was the first speaker. The National Peanut Festival should be in Georgia, I would think. Except for, uh, I don't know, except for, oh, no, 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 wait. The, um, they like the bull. Oh, here it is. They love the bull weevil there because the enterprise in Alabama is not cotton. The bull weevil forced them to diversify and become a peanut center. Oh. So the enterprise of enterprise is oh. peanut farming. I get it. I still think that's kind of a weird thing to thank the bull weevil for killing all the cotton. Thank you, bull weevil. It's like, uh, boy, I'm so glad we got penicillin out of World War One. Thank you, Kaiser. Seems like Thank You Bull Weevil is a President's of the USA song. <laughs> uh, here's an exact quote from Celeste. I said, if you want Americana, you've got good timing and sent them to the National Peanut Festival. Hot diggity. Thank you for letting us know. We also got Christmas presents. Oh. They're wrapped. Oh. And I don't know who from. They look like books. Do look like books? Do you Are they to, heavy like would, a book? Would you like to open yours? Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. The heaviest one of all says Mindy on it. I don't know why. Oh, um, they're now sending gifts hmm. to my family. That's lovely. Yes. I'm gonna read the note here. How to get a home divorce? Dawn with a W. Something for my airplane rides. Mm-hmm. And I got a copy of <laughs> Mad Libs. <laughs> Hey, there you go. I got Seattle-themed Mad Libs. You love them. And also a book of poetry called Other People's Comfort Keeps Me Up at Night, which is a pretty good which is a pretty good name for a poetry collection. The poems have titles like On Children, How I Hate Them and Want to Corrupt Them. That's good. Don uh, writes an ampersand, which is kind of unusual uh, to use ampersands in written com. Uh, correspondence these days. I tried to do it for a while. I draw a mean ampersand. But her ampersand looked to me at first like the numeral eight. And I thought she wrote, John, wishing you eight years a Merry Christmas. Uh, And then I realized she actually said, wishing you and yours a Merry Christmas. That does make sense. It's not like Hanukkah. There's not eight crazy years every Christmas. And here is what we got here at the at the bunker, the Star Wars Life Day Cookbook. You got to celebrate Life Day with all the Wookies and uh, B. Arthur and oh, uh, possibly Alan Arkin. That's not right. My daughter is going to be so thrilled. Although, are you, these all fake? No. You're going to be making all those recipes. The Kabatha crisps, the Kjallstad fizz. But they're all going to be made with earth ingredients like the stuff you can buy at at Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. Yeah, let's see. I, well, some of these instructions are actually in 
Elvish. Sorry, Art Carney, not... Oh, Alan Arkin would have been funny. I knew it was a Mike Nichols leading man. Art Carney. Oh, I miss him. Yeah, in a galaxy far away, you got to have Art Carney and uh, Jefferson Starship. What could be more <laughs> Star Wars-y than that? I can't believe they haven't shown up in Book of Boba Fett yet. Uh, Jefferson Starship? Yeah. They could be Jefferson uh, Star Destroyer. Yeah, there you go. See? And uh, I didn't finish the thing, did I? Uh, there's also a Patreon that you could support. Would it kill you? <laughs> Patreon.com slash Omnibus Project. You've been listening to us talk about uh, the Carpenters for free for an hour. Yeah. I feel like you could throw us a few coins. Right? Right? Right. right. At least you can do. Believe it. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past. We have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.